If you would, open up with me to our sermon text this morning as we've had longer sermon texts in our series through 1 Kings. We've been reading the text, um, then having our third song before the sermon. So we will be once again today in the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19 and one slight modification, we will only be going through verse 7 today. So 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow, I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you in particular for your word uh, the last nine months of last year as we've worked through this book of 1 Kings, Lord, that has led us to where we are today. And so this morning, we pray once again that you would do your work in our hearts. Even as this event occurred thousands of years ago, you knew that this exact group of people today, January 7th, 2024, would be sitting at the foot of these words. So Lord, we pray that you would just make effective everything that your spirit has set out to make effectual by this passage in this church on this day. Lord, may you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand, and we pray it all in your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as we start into our sermon this morning, we are going to see today and for the next few weeks, a significant shift in the life and the ministry of Elijah. And I wanna take our time going through chapter 19 for two reasons, two main reasons. Reason number one, I think this passage is probably new to most of y'all. And it's important for you to see these major implications the Lord has for us in this chapter, because this is actually a major moment in the life of God's people. So we don't wanna miss what it means for us. So we're gonna take our time for that reason. And number two, I wanna take our time because some of you are probably familiar with this passage and you will quickly find out that the way I'm getting ready to preach through it over these next few weeks may be different than you have heard it before. Dale Ralph Davis is very, very helpful here. So maybe some of you have picked up that commentary so you're already familiar with this. But he notes a couple things. He says, humans are strangely, perhaps perversely fascinated by weaknesses in prominent people. 
Scarcely has the fire died on Mount Carmel's altar in chapter 18 before a horde of expositors and commentators jump with both feet all over Elijah in chapter 19. To say it another way, Dale Ralph Davis is getting at the very heart of how so many people have interpreted 1 Kings 19 in the past. There are many examples of commentators and pastors who have written and preached this chapter with a view of the supposed selfishness and sinfulness of Elijah. Maybe that's how you've heard this chapter preached before. And honestly, it was the way I had prepared myself kind of all along through 1 Kings to preach through this before studying it in depth here this last little bit. So let me go ahead and say I am taking a bit of a different perspective on Elijah in this chapter than many commentators and modern interpretations have taken. I'm not alone in my understanding, but um, I am in the minority here and I don't take that lightly, but I am going in this direction because I really do believe there is something going on here much deeper than a whining prophet. Again, as Davis says, we may be dealing with matters of a redemptive historical moment and not merely a whining prophet. So to say that another way, this isn't a chapter about a prophet whining. It seems to be a chapter about a deeply significant moment in the history of God's people where Elijah is going to play a crucial role. And as your pastor, I think we need to slow down and see this in depth over the next few sermons. So for today, we're just gonna handle the first seven verses And I have two main points this morning. Point number one, a hardened heart will want to take God's servants out of the race. A hardened heart will want to take God's servants out of the race. And then point number two, a despondent heart will want to quit the race. A despondent heart will want to quit the race. So point number one, a hardened heart will want to take God's servants out of the race. And as we come to chapter 19, before we can get to Elijah, we have to start with Jezebel. And let me just repaint the picture of us, the scene we've gotten over the last chapter. Chapter 18 was a massive victory for the Lord over the false god Baal. And as chapter 18 comes to an end, we see Elijah steadfastly praying that the Lord will once again send rain upon Israel. And the Lord answers his sevenfold prayer. And as the rain is working its way towards Israel, Elijah goes to King Ahab and says, quick, you need to get back before the rain stops you. So Ahab gets in his chariot, he races towards Jezreel. And as we saw on Christmas Eve, Elijah is filled with the Holy Spirit and runs ahead of the chariot 14 miles all the way to Jezreel. And if you weren't here for that sermon and you're wanting to be a part of this series, I'd encourage you to go back to listen to that one because so many connections in that verse between Elijah and John the Baptist. But that's where 18, chapter 18 concludes with King Ahab pulling into Jezreel, having just witnessed this incredible victory of the Lord on top of Mount Carmel. And for a brief moment, y'all, there is hope that things might be different in Israel that maybe King Ahab is going to be a ruler who follows after the Lord. Maybe as King Ahab arrives back in Jezreel, he is going to advance that victory over Baal and Baal's prophets from this point forward. There is a level of hope. And honestly, here's what we're hoping for. 
And y'all listen, this is a little startling, but it's true. We are hoping that Ahab walks through the doors of the palace and issues a death sentence for his wife, Jezebel. After all, if all of the prophets of Baal were to be killed, how much more must the instigator of Baal worship in the kingdom, Jezebel, need to be killed? How much more should this wicked woman be killed who has herself had so many of the Lord's prophets killed? You see, in Jezebel, we see the leading murderer and the leading idolater in all of Israel, and her fate should be clear. There is no place among God's people for a woman like Jezebel to dwell. And according to the law in Israel at the time, justice would be taking the life of wicked Queen Jezebel. Now, that is the decision that is before Ahab as he arrives back in Jezreel. That's the choice before him. Is he going to turn from his sin, from his worship of idols, to serve the Lord faithfully and thus complete the work on top of Mount Carmel by having his wicked wife, who is responsible for the murder of so many of the Lord's faithful servants, executed? Or is he going to refuse to repent, continue to follow the wicked ways of Queen Jezebel? That is the choice before Ahab. And there is hope for a moment. There is an initial amount of hope as chapter 18 comes to an end. And then we read this. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. You see, this is one of the biggest thuds that we have in the scriptures. Ahab cowardly crawls back to Jezebel. He babbles on and on about everything that Elijah did and he's making clear who he is going to submit to. He is not going to submit to the Lord. He is not going to follow the prophet of the Lord. He is giving himself totally to the wicked ways of his wife Jezebel and of her God Baal, who Ahab should know by now isn't real. And notice, what does the author highlight about what Ahab says? Right, he says that Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah did, but what's the particular thing he highlights? That Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed. Now y'all hang on to that. That's gonna come up again next week. But all the prophets of Baal killed. And the implication that he's communicating to Jezebel is that if Elijah is right, then Jezebel should be killed too. And Jezebel does not miss the point, does she? Because what is the message she sends to Elijah? The message she sends is, I'm coming to have you killed. So the crux of the story at this point And y'all, this is so important. Either Jezebel must die if true faithfulness to Yahweh is going to be restored or Elijah must die if faithfulness to Baal will be realized. Do you see that? That is now at the center of the story. And actually that storyline is gonna remain in the background for a number of chapters. Either Jezebel must die or Elijah must die. That is at the heart of the whole narrative. And spoiler alert, this is one major reason why Elijah will never die, but will actually be taken into heaven by a chariot. 
But that is another sermon for another day later this year. But notice something else important in our text this morning. Jezebel actually exposes her God in this point, doesn't she? Because what does she say? She invokes a curse that may the gods strike me down and kill me if by this time tomorrow you are not killed. And one day passes and another day and another day and another day and another day. And guess who hasn't been killed? Elijah. And guess who hasn't been struck down? Jezebel, which is yet another clear piece of evidence that her gods do not exist. She has exposed the non-existence of her fake gods and her efforts to sound intimidating. So what we're getting in these two little verses as we move to this next part of 1 Kings is actually something that is emblematic of everything going on in our world. Ultimately, of what is true during this period of human existence where God sovereignly reigns and rules, but Satan, death, and sin are still allowed to exist. Ultimately, one of only two things must happen. Either evil and darkness will win or goodness and light will win. Either evil and darkness is gonna be victorious or goodness and light will be victorious. And in order for evil and darkness to win, everything that is good and light must be extinguished. And in order for goodness and light to win, everything that is wicked and evil must be destroyed. You see, we do not live in a neutral world. We live in a world that is at war. One side will live and one side will die. One kingdom will win and the other kingdom will be destroyed. And what is at stake in our human lives is ultimately about which kingdom we desire to be a part of, which kingdom we choose to throw our lot in with. That is ultimately the choice Ahab has here. And he makes clear that his decision is to be a part of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of wickedness in opposition to Yahweh. After all that Ahab saw on top of Mount Carmel in the face of every bit of evidence that has pointed so clearly to the might and power and goodness of the Lord, he chooses Jezebel. And ultimately, that choice is him choosing the worship of false gods over the worship of the one true God. Brothers and sisters, as we start 2024 this week, this Sunday, y'all do not get lost in New Year's resolutions, all right? Those are not terrible things. Those may be things you wanna make, fair enough, but do not get lost in them. Do not get lost in annual goals or become consumed and distracted by the things of this world. Realize as we start a new year that the war around us has not slowed down. It is only heightening year after year after year. And ultimately, you must make a choice. You must decide who you will follow. You must decide who you will submit to, which kingdom you desire to be a part of, where you're going to put your faith and hope. My prayer is that for all of us in here, that hope and faith will be placed in the Lord. The Lord who is the only mighty and powerful God, the only one who we've seen that can hear and answer every one of our prayers, the only one who loves us 
and desires deeply to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and evil, to bring us into the kingdom of his dear son. Brothers and sisters, as 2024 begins, if you've never made that choice, may you make it today. And if you have made that choice, don't get lost in the things of this world, but realize that when you make that choice, then you have been given a race to run by faith. And as a member of the kingdom of heaven, that will be a race the enemy does not want you to run. By any means necessary, there will be an effort to take you out of the race. Because hardened hearts like Jezebel's are always desiring to take God's servants out of the race. And so we must be on guard against that. And we must protect our own heart too, which leads to our second point this morning as we turn to Elijah. Point number two, a despondent heart wants to quit the race. A despondent heart wants to quit the race. Now we see this in verses three to seven, and I think there's a few things we need to acknowledge right away. First, it does not seem like in Elijah, we are looking at a man who has gone crazy, right? He gets painted that way sometimes. It doesn't seem like we're looking at someone who is irrational, who has lost his faith, someone who is acting foolishly or irrationally, who's being reactional. We do not see a prophet abandoning his post, okay? That is important. Because if we think that, then we're gonna miss the rest of this chapter. This doesn't seem to be Elijah abandoning his post. I don't think that's, that's the picture we get here. Rather, we see a man who realizes accurately the decision King Ahab has made. He sees that Ahab has made his choice to put his lot in with Jezebel. And thus that mighty victory on Mount Carmel and all the hope that lasted a 14-mile chariot ride from Carmel to Jezreel, all of that hope has come crashing down. Ahab is not a king to rule with an iron rod. He is not a king to rule with righteousness and justice. And he is not a king that is going to guard or protect the lives of the Lord's servants. So all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, Elijah is now right in the crosshairs, and so he flees for his life. We're gonna see in a moment that Elijah does wish to die, but he doesn't wish to die at the hands of Jezebel. He doesn't wish to die in a way that would give her the victory and undermine Carmel. Commentator Ronald Allen gets this right, I think, when he says Elijah wanted to die for he was broken, but he did not wish to die at Jezebel's hand, for that would be judged her victory, hence his flight. You see, Elijah has a plan that he puts into action. He is deeply broken. He is sorrowful. And in so many ways, he is despondent. But he is not foolish. He leaves the northern kingdom. He travels south to the land of Judah. He strategically here leaves his servant there and then goes off into the wilderness by himself to plead with the Lord. This is a man that we've seen, a man of deep prayer, who has now set off to a place of isolation and solace to once again plead and pour out his heart to the Lord. Darrell Davis adds, Elijah was broken, but one can be broken without being psychotic. 
when Elijah goes a day's travel into the wilderness, that can hardly be for fear of Jezebel. You see, so many people cast Elijah off at this point, but do we need to do that in the text? Of course not. Elijah is seeking a place of solace and isolation to pour out his heart to the Lord in a time following a great spiritual battle. Y'all, he is empty. He is broken. He is dejected. His hopes and dreams for how he thought God was going to bring about his kingdom have now been dashed. He is confused. He is troubled at the very core of his soul, but he is not running away from the Lord or away from his post. He is running to a place of isolation towards the Lord to pour out his heart in prayer. And y'all, haven't you been there before? For Elijah, the race God has given him to run has in his mind at this moment become too much for him. He is overwhelmed, he is afraid, he is exhausted, and he doesn't know what to do next. That's the picture we have painted, not one of rebellion or self-pity. It is one of utter emptiness and weakness and all of his human frailty as James describes him in the New Testament, without an understanding of what God is doing. You see, this isn't so much Jonah refusing to go to Nineveh as it is John the Baptist sending word from prison asking Jesus, are you really the one? If we read this passage like Elijah being arrogant, prideful, and self-consumed, then we have no place to exercise these doubts and troubles when we have them. But when we see this passage the way that I believe it's given to us, then we have great hope for what God will do when we arrive at times like this. You see, Elijah is despondent. Hank asked this morning when we were going over this, what does despondent mean? And there's a good definition. I like despondency, to be in low spirits due to a loss of hope and courage to be in low spirits due to the loss of hope and courage. And what does a despondent heart then wanna do? Y'all, it wants to quit the race. Not to give up faith, but to just be done with all those hard aspects of the faith that have seemed to rob us of that hope and courage. I don't need to tell y'all this, but you all know that life in a sinful, fallen world where the devil has been cast down and he knows all of his days are numbered. Y'all, life in this world is hard. Spiritual darkness is real and it attacks us and it wants to lead us into spiritual depression. And it causes those with hardened hearts to wanna take us out of the race. Then you've got all the effects of death and decay on our bodies that make the race we have to run by faith that much harder. And then we have the effects of our own sins and the sins of others that can be debilitating. And sometimes our hearts just reach that point of despondency and we don't know where to go next other than to seek the Lord and pour out the fullness of what's in our hearts. Some of you in here, I'm sure today, are in a place like this. The race God has given you to run by faith right now seems overwhelming. It seems daunting. It seems too much for you. You might be rightly grasping the reality of your situation in life 
by the way, and you see how much the forces of evil and death and sin have taken from you and continue to take from you. And maybe you're tempted to ask God to let you just tap out of some part of your race or perhaps even all of your race, right? I think we've all been there at some level at times. I've been there not so long ago and at more than one occasion I've been there. Maybe not to tap out of the entire race, but certainly particular parts of my race that have seemed overwhelming. And if we all started to share, I would think a great number of us have been in this place at one time or another. You see despondency, low spirits due to the loss of hope and courage is just a real struggle in the Christian life sometimes. So I bet all all of us can relate to Elijah at some level in verse four where he says, Lord, I have had enough. And look at God's gracious response. The Lord deals very tenderly with one of his servants who has poured himself out to the point of despondency and spiritual exhaustion. You see, this isn't Elijah seeking to commit suicide. We don't see that in the text. This is Elijah's despondent heart, just wanting God to let him tap out of the race. He is trusting the Lord to make the decision for him. He's willing to go forward, hence it is not suicide. But in this moment of emptiness and weakness, he cannot even see far enough ahead to know how he's supposed to go forward. Again, we need to see this picture as a legitimate state of our Christian lives sometimes. In the midst of our Christian walks, especially after times of great spiritual battle, we may well be left in a place of emptiness and weakness and just unable to see the next step forward in our walk of faith. And again, some of us may be in here right now. Your heart is crying out, Lord, I have had enough. I am empty, I am weak, and I don't know how I can go any further in this race than I have come. Lord, take this cup from me. When you're in this place, make sure you run towards the Lord instead of running from the Lord, as we see Elijah doing here. And when we do, we can be comforted by what comes next. The Lord lets Elijah rest, doesn't he? He sleeps. And then an angel is sent to comfort him by providing him with food and water. And then he sleeps again. And then the angel gives him food once more. What do we have in this passage? I think we clearly have the Lord giving a brief but sufficient time of necessary spiritual refreshment for his beloved servant who has reached that point of spiritual exhaustion. So let me say that again. So this is important. I think we clearly have the Lord giving a brief but sufficient time of necessary spiritual refreshment for his beloved servant who has reached the point of spiritual exhaustion. And for me, as I worked through this passage this week, this helped make clear another part of the scripture to me. Doesn't this make sense of what we read in Luke 22, 42 to 43? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane says, Father, if you are willing Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Y'all, it's fine to reach that point of spiritual exhaustion 
In fact, if you never do, I might challenge you that you never exerted yourself enough spiritually. So to reach this point is not a bad thing. And it's imperative that we not read this chapter as if the Lord is getting ready to chastise Elijah because we need to remember that even Jesus received the ministry of an angel in Gethsemane to be refreshed and strengthened before he received his next great challenge, which on a smaller scale is paralleled in our passage here because Elijah too is, is about to receive his next great challenge, which we'll look at next week. But see how our passage ends this morning. Verse seven, then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. Many commentators see Elijah in this passage running away from the Lord. But what seems to be clear in verse seven, it seems like the Lord is actually the one sending him on this journey that Elijah's being divinely commissioned to go to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, that there is an important essential role that Elijah, God's great prophet, God's great covenant prosecutor is getting ready to play in the passage that we're gonna look at next week. And before he goes to that place, he needs strength. We're gonna see so many parallels at play in chapter 19. And if we don't see that it is God sending Elijah to this next location, then we will miss the point that I think we're supposed to see. Again, as Dale Ralph Davis says, Elijah goes to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai with divine authorization, a fact which should control how we construe Yahweh's question in verses nine and 13. And again, that's something we plan to look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. But as we close out our sermon this morning, I wanna leave us reflecting on one thing in a few ways. The Lord has given every one of his servants a race to run by faith. So if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you have been given a race to run by faith. And in many ways, they are all different, right? The race I'm running by faith, even as it is intersecting this morning with all of yours, is a different race. But as we see all of these different races being run by faith, if we are aiming to be engaged in the spiritual battle around us, it is likely that many of us will reach times when our hearts become despondent too, when our spirits become low because of a loss of hope and courage. And when those times come, God has given us one another to be servants of the Lord and messengers of God to strengthen and encourage each other. Y'all, I need that from every one of you that are members of this church, just as you need that from me and from each other. We will all have times we need to be strengthened and encouraged because we will all have times that we're tempted to wanna tap out of at least part of the race of faith that God has given us. So two quick things. First, when you reach that place, do not run from the Lord and do not run from God's people. Run towards the Lord and towards one another, pouring your heart out, knowing you need to be strengthened and encouraged. And second, when you see someone in a place like this, do not chastise them or look down on them for being spiritually empty in a season of life. In fact, it may well be that they are where they are because God had placed them in a part of the battle that you may never have to go to. Do you look down on a soldier in our military who returns from serving with a lost limb 
because he was on the front lines of battle. Of course not, right? You are compassionate towards that soldier precisely because you see it as the cost they paid to fight for you. And so often the same is true here. Do not look down on a person in a place like Elijah because their despondency may well be evidence that they've just been on the front lines in a really hard place of the battle. So it's our job to serve one another like this angel of the Lord, giving rest and encouragement and strength to our brothers and sisters when they are spiritually empty, which is where I wanna give our baptism application as we close. Austin and Brantley and everyone in here who has covenant children, by virtue of having your child baptized and placing them into the covenant community, you have placed them in the race of faith already. It is a race that the enemy does not want your child to complete. And it is a race that at times and in some ways, your child will want to tap out of. And when that time comes, remember this passage. Do not respond to your child's doubts or fears, or questions, or even despondency with chastisement, or anger, or self-importance. Being consumed with how they're wrestling with the faith may reflect on you as a parent. Rather, see your role in those moments, and especially in those moments, as a messenger of God, encouraging them, strengthening them, and helping to give them direction for how they go forward in their race of faith at that given time. Austin and Brantley Reed is going to need that from both of you, as will Charlotte and Jack, and as will every child in this church. And I pray that our covenant children will always remember our church and our parents as those who, will, who were quick to provide spiritual strengthening and encouragement in the times they most wanted to tap out of the race of faith. When they tell us they've had enough, for as we do that, then y'all, when we finish our races, we will also hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for your provision for us in these seasons where we lose hope and courage. Lord, in our seasons of despondency. Father, I pray for any in here this morning that are in that place right now, may you give strength and encouragement. Lord, I pray for all of us in here when we reach those places that you would remind us of this passage and remind us to run towards you, to pour out our heart to you. And if we don't know the next place to go, that we would just trust that you will show us what that is. So Lord, we ask that you would do these mighty things in the life of our church this year and forevermore. And we pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.